0: This month's episode of Practical Significance is brought to you by Confounding Variables. Are you having difficulty showing that a treatment is effective, or worse, are you losing sleep wondering if the association you found between treatment and outcome is not actually real? Your concerns are well-founded, my friend, or perhaps I should say, you may be confounded, my friend. Indeed, this very moment, just out of sight, there may be a confounding variable. While the definition of a confounding variable is technical, here is a handy description from Lauren Thomas on Scribber. If you are trying to determine cause and effect, a confounding variable is a variable you didn't measure, but that influences both the supposed cause and the supposed effect. A ridiculous example might help clarify. Suppose we notice in our data set that cities with a high number of streetlights also have a high number of crimes. Should we get rid of streetlights? Of course not. More streetlights are in places with larger population, and places with larger population tend to also have more crime. I said it was a ridiculous example. But in real experiments, it is not hard to overlook confounding variables or to fail to properly deal with them. This may result in failed research, and ain't nobody got time for that. But there is hope. Lurking variables need not sabotage your work. There are approaches to designing experiments that can address the problem, but you can't wait until after you have conducted your experiment. So here's a simple tip, one that I've been giving you for many podcasts now. Consult a professional statistician. Don't wait until it's too late. Make that call today. And now, let's join the podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Practical Significance, a podcast to inspire listeners. With compelling stories from statistics and data science, and to propel data driven careers forward. Here are your hosts the ASA's Director of Strategic Initiatives, Donna Lalone, and Executive Director, Ron Wasserstein. Welcome, everyone, or hopefully, welcome back if you are a longtime listener of practical significance. Ron and I are very excited to have as our guest for the June episode of Practical Significance, the inaugural winners of the ASA Pride Scholarship. So I'm going to start by asking Holly and Evan to introduce themselves, and then we'll dive into some of the questions. And so, Evan, I'll start with you. Could you tell our audience a little bit about who you are?
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Donna. I am a postdoctoral scholar doing research in RNA biology in San Diego. I consider myself a molecular biologist specializing in biophysical modeling and statistical genetics.
1: That's fantastic. And we're going to start out all being envious of the fact that you are in San Diego, but we'll leave that aside for now. And Holly, please tell our listeners about yourself. Yeah, thank you, Donna. I am a second year PhD student at Carnegie
3: Mellon in the Department of Statistics and Data Science with a joint appointment in the Heinz School of Public Policy. So I'm currently in Pittsburgh, also not as nice of weather as San Diego.
1: For sure. Well, thanks for that. And actually, we want to do a little bit of a deeper dive into your current work, because as hopefully our listeners know, but if they do not, that one of the goals of the Pride Scholarship is to support the professional development of the LGBTQ plus community. So tell us a little bit about your day-to-day work and whatever else we should know about what's going on in your lives. And Holly, I'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. So a lot of
3: my work is really making it through the first few years of a graduate program. But also, I think a lot of my interests are just generally interdisciplinary applied statistics in public policy, specifically with criminology, sociology. For instance, I've worked on a project estimating the causal effects of criminal justice contact on various mental health measures, some sort of neat methodology. But yeah, I would say my interests are, are really pretty broad. And the work I do day to day is kind of all over the place, because I'm still kind of a fledgling statistician still trying to figure
1: out what exactly I'm, I'm interested in. And yeah, that that's basically it. That's great. Well, Ron and I are just, you know, just a couple of years out of graduate school, but I think we still remember what it's like to be a new graduate student. So, we appreciate that getting through is a huge accomplishment. Evan, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing on a day-to-day basis.
2: Absolutely. I would say on a day-to-day basis I'm doing a lot of different things. I do experiments in the lab, I talk to my coworkers, I read a lot of papers. In general, I would say the unifying idea of my research is understanding the molecular building blocks of life. How are they assembled? How do they function? And how do they break down and lead to health and disease? My current lab focuses on RNA-binding protein biology. These are the proteins that bind RNA in cells and chew them up and read them to produce proteins. And that requires a lot of different approaches. I focused on doing DNA sequencing assays to learn about biochemistry of uh, RNA-binding proteins, as well as computational approaches.
0: So thank you both for those peeks into your professional lives. We're going to dig a little deeper now by asking both of you, as you start out on your career journey, who your important mentors are. So Evan, let's just go right back to you, and then we'll flip over to Holly.
2: Yeah, my important mentors, I've had a lot of them in my career. I would say I've worked with five main advisors in my research at University of Washington, Stanford University, and now UC San Diego. (laughs) I'll go ahead and list them. Mike Gelb in biochemistry at University of Washington, Jay Shinduri in the Department of Genome Sciences at UW, and then Will Greenleaf and Jonathan Pritchard at Stanford. And My current advisor is Dr. Jean Yeo at UC San Diego. And I have to say that in addition to my formal research advisors, my coworkers have been really great mentors to me. There's a lot of opportunities to learn from who you're working with and have a personal and professional connection with them. So I'm just really grateful to all of the great scientists that I've worked with in my career.
0: I'm just going to follow up for a second, Evan, to ask if you see anything in common or are there any, you know, sort of at this point in your career, any takeaways as far as what has made these various people good mentors?
2: Absolutely. I think that having the ability to be autonomous and pursue your own research questions is really essential. And I think all of my mentors have done that. It really isn't possible for a, a mentor to be aware of everything that you're doing and give you advice at every step of the way. So I think the ability of them to sort of trust me and let me exercise my own judgment in my research has been really fulfilling. And and let me do some really great science.
0: Thank you. So Holly, tell us a bit about your mentors.
3: Yes, I've also had quite a few really great mentors. One of them specifically at my undergrad institution, Boise State University, Dr. Chris Laux really was instrumental in helping me and just encouraging me to apply to graduate school and, and pursue what I was interested in. And of course, the really the entire faculty at Carnegie Mellon, it been great. But I have to echo what Evan said with some of my colleagues and and other PhD students in the department kind of being the best mentors that I have. I think it to be successful and to maintain sanity, I suppose, it really takes a village. And I think some of my best mentors have been other graduate students, maybe a few years older than me that I've been able to get a lot of really good advice from and and have helped me navigate a lot of of grad school. And uh, yeah, they've been extremely helpful.
0: I sure understand that. I remember how much I valued advice from more experienced colleagues. And I'll just tell you that, yeah, as Donna said, it has been a few years since graduate school, but uh, many of the people that I went to graduate school with that I considered mentors and friends are still very much a part of my life.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. I'll agree with that, Ron. In fact, one of my closest uh, friends from graduate school and I have moved on to the next phase of figuring out how we are going to be master's age group winners in ultra marathons. Right. So it just continues. That's really an aspirational dream there. The winning part. So I'll stay with the theme of mentoring and thinking about uh, the graduation season that we are in. What advice would you offer to students who are considering graduate school? And Holly, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think there are kind of the
3: typical things that you hear about when you're applying to grad school of what faculty members you could see yourself doing research with or what schools kind of generally interest you. I think that's all great. But I also think that the environment that you are applying to or that you might end up in is very important. Your research interests, I think, are likely to change. And I think it's really important that you can evaluate and see if a specific university, a specific place is going to be a place that you can thrive. Also, just enjoy the process of being in this stage of your life because it is very exciting. You know, it's still very challenging and very difficult time. But being in grad school is also really fun and very exciting. And you're often surrounded by some very brilliant people. And it's a time where you get to learn under a number of really fantastic mentors and and just experience a lot of different things. It's a time of growth and, and learning that's really fun and exciting. So my advice is take grad school and applying to grad school seriously, but also try to also stop and enjoy the part of life that you're experiencing now and and not get too wrapped up in the stresses of things because it'll all work out eventually.
1: That's great advice. Evan, what would you add in terms of advice to uh, prospective grad students?
2: Yeah, I was listening to Holly and I was thinking, when I think of undergraduate life, I think of these big decisions. And so I have a very scientist answer to that question, which is to focus on the facts when you're making these big decisions. And admit what you don't know, because that's okay if you don't know everything. And uh, make an effort to learn more about opportunities and different choices ahead of you. I think... It's easy to get tunnel vision, to think of the next step, getting into a certain program, finishing that class, getting an exam. But, you know, really reflect on what you want to experience and what you enjoy doing. And don't let yourself get distracted by the small things in life. Focus on what you want and what you know. Just go for these opportunities. Look at what steps are available to you and think critically about them.
0: I think that's really good advice, and I know people will appreciate it. And now I'm going to take a big switch in directions and start to ask you when you're not studying or doing research, which I realize may not be as large a percent of your time as you'd like. What do you like to do to relax, Holly? Let's start with you.
3: Yeah, so I developed a number of, of strategies to help me relax in grad school. I'm an avid cook. I really love to cook, so. That's kind of one fun way in which I get to do something creative that isn't research. I love cooking and, and cooking for other people in my life and sharing conversations over over meals is, is really fun. I guess one way in which I relax too is trying to maintain some sense of a healthy life of getting a lot of really good sleep and eating well and exercising. I know that's so boring, but... It really is true. I think one thing I know that about myself is that a good night's sleep really goes a long way. So I am very anti staying up late to finish a deadline. I'm very pro getting eight hours of sleep every night.
2: I support this.
0: (laughs) I agree. That's a brilliant strategy. Should have thought of that about 40 years ago, but that's beside the point. So Evan, what are things that you like to do to relax?
2: Well, I love hiking in California. There are some really stunning views and trails in San Diego. You can see the ocean and the desert from the same spot. So that's one of my favorite activities here. I also do a lot of reading of articles online. I read the New York Times and the Atlantic, long, short. I just love reading these articles and staying informed and up to date. So I think those are really the two standouts for what I like to do.
1: Okay, so I just have to ask, Evan, because I'm an avid New York Times reader as well, and I still get the Sunday Times in print because there just feels like something so wonderful about you know having the book review opened in front of me. So do you completely read digitally or do you get anything in print?
2: I am full digital, Donna. I used to get the New York Times in print when I was an undergraduate. Our instructor for a class advised us to get it delivered in print. And we were all supposed to subscribe and read our New York Times regularly. So I actually really did enjoy that. But I, what can I say? I've fallen prey to modern convenience and I only read online now.
1: Uh, That probably has something to do with the couple of years age difference that there is between us. But, and Holly, before I go on, I just have to ask because I'm going to be in Pittsburgh for SDSS at the beginning of June. As a foodie, do you have a restaurant recommendation that I need to share with my colleagues? Oh my gosh, this is a fantastic question
3: because I just have been exploring a lot more restaurants here in Pittsburgh. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. Let me let me think for a second. There's one restaurant that is called Apteca. That's a really good one. And it's, it's Eastern European food. It can be kind of difficult to get in, but you can make a reservation as long as you're a group of four people or more. So that might be something to look into. Apteca is really good. And they have a great wine list and this is a hard-hitting question because there are so many good places. Honestly, my favorite restaurant in all of Pittsburgh, which I don't know, this might be a bit controversial, is a Chinese restaurant in Squirrel Hill called Chengdu Gourmet. It is so good. I also just really love Chinese food. They have one menu of American Chinese food and then one with more authentic Chinese food. And it's really fun, especially if you're going with a group of people, you can get a bunch of stuff and share it, which is kind of my preferred style of dining. So I would definitely recommend those two,
1: but happy to talk offline about anything (laughs) Pittsburgh-related. We will definitely reach out. And in fact, if we're there and you're there, you'll have to join us for dinner.
3: I would love that. That would be great. I would jump at any chance to really go to any restaurant.
1: So (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Since we are celebrating Pride Month, we wanted to wrap up by asking both of you, if you had any suggestions for our listeners who might want to learn more about Pride Month, favorite activities, Evan, feel free to uh, give me a recommendation on a good read or, yeah, just pretty much open that up for your recommendations. And Evan, we'll start with you. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And I think I have a pride recommendation that your listeners might like. My recommendation is to learn some of the latest statistics on LGBTQ people. In addition to reading a lot of articles in The New York Times and other newspapers, there are really great sources of information on LGBTQ representation. Gallup just released its 2022 results demonstrating that 7.1% of the U.S. identifies as LGBT, including 21% of Gen Z. So I really recommend reading more of these statistics on Gallup's website, visiting the Trevor Project, looking at other great websites like 500 Queer Scientists. They have a resources section on their website that lists a lot of articles about LGBT people and their experience in STEM.
1: That's great. And, you know, you are absolutely correct. We can't go wrong with a recommendation to read more about stats, right? Holly, how about you? What recommendations would you have? In a similar vein
3: of of educating yourself, I think if any listeners aren't familiar with some of the the origins of Pride Month, to to look into things like the Stonewall riots, I think that's a really important piece of Pride Month and how it started. Um, But I'd also suggest your listeners to maybe think beyond what Pride Month is typically about. You know, it's not always just about Flying a, a pride flag or anything like that, but to just kind of maybe do a little bit of introspection on your identity and, and your connection and understanding of the community, and also to understand LGBTQ plus is a very big, broad community, and there's there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of uh, variation in in those of us within the community and our experiences. So also just be aware that you know, don't assume that we're all the same. Some people might feel comfortable during Pride Month showing and and being out and, you know, maybe waving their pride flag. But there are some of us that maybe don't necessarily feel comfortable doing that. And yeah, keep in mind that some people just have a a different connection to their identity. My recommendation is to do a little introspection and, and understanding of those of us in the
1: community. Wow. That's just wonderful. Both of you have given us a lot to think about, and we're so appreciative that you took the time to talk with us and and happy that it's been a good year for both of you since 2021 had its challenges. So with that, we will say thank you and thank you to our listeners as well. And I will turn it over to Ron for the tradition of the top 10.
0: Thank you, Donna. It's graduation time, and the Practical Significance podcast salutes all who are graduating this year, especially given all the disruptions of the past two years. As you know, students who excel often graduate with Latin honors, such as summa cum laude, which means with highest praise, or magna cum laude, with great praise. But there are other ways to excel and other things to acknowledge at a graduation. So, in our continuing effort to make the world a better place, we offer, thanks to Google Translate, the top 10 needed Latin honors. Number 10. In tantum perceptum anos. In just seven years. Number 9. Muratis parentes. Surprised my parents. Number 8. Muratis sum. Surprised myself. Number 7. Cute dentes meos. By the skin of my teeth. Number 6. Ad Minimum Canatus, with Minimum Effort. Number five, Per excellentium in Ludit, with Excellence in Partying. Number four, Latin Honor, Cum Fortana, with Luck. Number three, In Omnibus Me, in Spite of Myself. Number two, Nunquam Fore, Never Thought It Would Happen. And the number one needed Latin Honor, Cum Paulo Auxilium de Amicius meus epulare with a little help from my friends. Well, that's it for this episode of Practical Significance. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to continuing the conversation next month.
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of Practical Significance, the podcast of the American Statistical Association. A new episode will be coming your way next month from Amstat News, the ASA's monthly membership magazine.